When we were in Florida, we stayed with Jason and Stephanie Meyer at their house, and uh, last Sunday afternoon, I believe, uh, we, one of the things that we did was we went and visited a flea market that they like to go to, and so we got to wander around and see some of the different things that were for sale there. It was kind of interesting at some points, and there were some kind of weird things there, but one of the things that um, happened as we were there is uh, I stopped at a booth where a person was advertising plans and construction for log homes, which is something that I like if I ever come into a fortune. That's what I would like to do is, is build a long home, log home on some property. So as I was talking with him about uh, those different things, it was a you know, fairly professional, business-like conversation. And uh, as we got to talking, he asked what we were doing in Florida because it came out that I was from Missouri. And so we explained that we were picking up our daughter from this little school that's run by Christians. And, um, you know, Florida College is a hard thing to explain to anybody, but we just kind of kind of stopped there with that. And when he heard the word Christian, he got kind of a funny look on his face. And he reached into the back of his pile of business cards and handed me one, which on the back had Romans 6, verse 3, all of sin and or the wages of sin is death, and the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, and John 3.16, and, and some other verses. But it, it just kind of struck me how it was almost like he was secretly slipping me a card to say, hey, I'm one too. Uh, and, it, and it made me think, is that is that really how the world is becoming? Is that how we're starting to think and function as Christians? You know, for a long time we believed that the United States was a Christian nation founded on Christian principles, and it was, uh, more or less, based on the principles of the Bible? And have we reached a stage in our society where we are starting to feel as Christians as the minority in our culture? And if so, what are we to do about that? What attitude should we have about that? Is that something to resent? Uh, do we need to fight to win back our country so it'll be a Christian country once again? What attitude really are we supposed to have in the world as Christians? As you look at this title, if you took notes and if you have a really good memory, uh, I preached a lesson very similar to this about three years ago. And so some of these things are going to be familiar. Uh, something else that for me is going on is that in September, I'm preaching a meeting in, in Exton, Pennsylvania, where we were years ago. And so I'm kind of in the process of thinking about what I want to talk about. And part of that is going to require that I go through and think about some things again that I've talked about before. Uh, I don't usually remember what I said three years ago, so it's a pretty safe bet that you don't remember what I said three years ago either. Uh, so I don't think it will be re too repetitive for you. But uh, we do want to think about this mindset that we ought to have as we live as a Christian in this world. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and in verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So right there in the language, we understand or should understand what we are in the world. He says, as sojourners and exiles, I am urging you to do what you're doing and keeping your conduct among the Gentiles pure as a sojourner and an exile among the Gentiles. That's how Peter says we view ourselves as Christians. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 36, Paul says, As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So there is a sense, certainly, in which the children of God are conquerors in this world. That's what Paul says, right, in verse 37. In all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. We are conquerors in this world, but it's a strange sort of conquering. It's not in the way that most think of conquering because our conquering in this world involves um, being persecuted and being killed. As he says in verse 36, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. We will ultimately be victorious, but not necessarily ever in this life. It's actually more true, I think, that Christians are here on this earth as sojourners and wanderers, citizens of a heavenly kingdom who don't really belong here. And so what John Piper says about that is understanding that, that we are the outsiders, we are the strangers, we're the travelers, we're the pilgrims, we're the wanderers, that should take a little bit of swagger out of Christian cultural influence. And there really shouldn't be quite the expectation that the world conform to our ideals if we begin to recognize that we are the strangers. And so what I'd like to do for a few minutes tonight is just look at some difference in attitude before, between someone who comes in as one who is ruling and overtaking a culture and the attitude that someone has who is a traveler and a wanderer and just passing through those things. So one of the first things that we see is that a conqueror is one who owns and rules the culture in which he lived. When the Romans came through and, and swept before the world, they instituted their laws, they instituted their customs. Their language was what was being spoke. But the Christian attitude is what John says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I don't think we talk very much about the evil one anymore. We kind of pretend like he doesn't really exist and he doesn't really do anything. But John says the world lies under his power. Peter says he walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James says, resist him and he will flee from you. In other words, he is still working and he is still effective in his way in this world. And John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And just as you look at the world that we live in, not even just our country, but any bit of news you get from anywhere in the world, is there any evidence that says this is no longer true, that it's changed, that now most of the world is subject to the will of God? The whole world still is under the power of the evil one. The whole world still is ruled for the most part by lies and by greed and by passion and by lust. There's not very many places in the world where people are ruled and led by the principles that God espouses in his world. A conqueror owns and rules the culture. But, but John says we're not those. We're from God. But the whole world lies under the sway of the evil one. So how comfortable really are we going to be in the world? How well are we going to blend in and fit in in the world? The whole world is following him, but we're following God. Now you compare a wanderer as far as his attitude towards the culture. Instead of dominating and ruling the culture, what a, what a passer-through does is he serves and he illuminates the culture in which he lives. So if you look at Matthew chapter 5. In verse 13. 
In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And as you look at those comparisons that are being used there, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. And what we're supposed to illuminate is we're supposed to point to God with the light that we are. But when you think about salt and light, is there anybody here that just eats salt to eat salt? And if you had a meal that was nothing but salt, would that be exciting? Would that be enjoyable? Would that be pleasant? But I would guess that the majority of us here do like salt, right? But what salt does is it flavors something, right? Or it enhances the flavor of something. The salt is not the thing. It's the influence on the thing. And that's what Jesus says you are in the world. You're not going to bend the world to your will. The world is not going to become like you. But you're going to serve and you're going to illuminate the culture in which you live. You're going to be a sweet savor upon this corrupt, dirty culture that you live in. But you're never going to overrun the culture. And the same thing with the light. I like light. Most of us like light. Do you ever turn on a light in a room and just say, wow, look at that light? Or, or do you generally turn on the light so that you can look at something else? And, and so in the same, same way, if you are the light of the world, you are being an illuminating thing, but, it, but again, you're not being the main thing. You're illuminating God to the world. You're, you're illuminating truth to the world. But you're not going to be the thing that everybody is noticing or paying attention to. Well, something else about conquerors. Uh, what they do is they dominate and they demand. Matthew chapter 20. <clears throat> Verses 25 and 26. Jesus called them and said to them, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so there's, there's the way the world works. That's the way a conqueror works. As he comes and kicks down the door and says, from now on, things are going to be my way. And Jesus says, it shall not be that way among you. You're not conquerors. What a wanderer does, rather than dominate, what he does is he entreats. He pleads. He pleads. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. <clears throat> Beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you were wise in Christ. We are weak, but you were strong. You were held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world 
the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. When he describes how an apostle conducts himself and isn't the kingdom of God, isn't the church built on the foundation of Christ and then the apostles and the prophets. If you could say anybody is great in the kingdom of God, wouldn't you have to say the apostles are great in the kingdom of God? And as they describe how they exist in the world, when we're reviled, what do we do? Revile back? No, we bless. When we persecute, do we raise a riot? No, we endure. When we're slandered, when people lie about us, do we shout and stomp our feet? No, we just entreat. We speak humbly. We speak politely. That's the way a wanderer acts. Someone who isn't in charge, someone who's just passing through, is going to have to conduct himself just a little bit more humbly. And anybody who's traveled to another country understands that's exactly how you have to exist when you live in or work in another country. I don't want to bore you any more with traveling stories because I've only been a few places. But when I told you before about being arrested in Russia, that was one aspect of that is you just recognize, I don't know the rules here. I don't know how things work. I don't know what's normal. I don't belong here. And so you are just trying to be as humble as possible, hoping that they will be as lenient as possible. And that's really your only option. And that's the way a wanderer is going to act. Conquerors command. We've already seen that just a little bit. Wanderers, rather than commanding, what they have to do is they have to persuade and they have to convince someone as they go and talk to them. They don't lay down the law, but they might be able to persuade people. In Acts chapter 17... Verse 16, Paul's in Athens. It says, While Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. Some said, What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know about this new teaching. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And, and so you see Paul's approach as he's there in Athens. What he begins doing is reasoning with people, beginning in the synagogue with the Jews and with devout people, and then he goes in the marketplace every day and strikes up conversations with people who has to be there, who happen to be there, and then eventually some of the philosophers uh, take note of him, and they have conversations with him, and eventually they invite him even up to the Areopagus to speak. But who's driving the whole thing? You know, Paul does not walk into town saying, hey, you all come up here, we're going to have a talk. He's just reasoning. He's just persuading. And that's what we do when we recognize that we don't belong here. And that's a consistent pattern. Acts chapter 18, verse 4. When he leaves Athens and goes to Corinth, verse 4 says, He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. In Acts chapter 26. 
when Paul is speaking to Agrippa. And he's giving all of his evidence and all of his history. And finally at the end, in verse 26, he says to Agrippa, I, know, I am persuaded none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? That's always the approach, just trying to convince. Never laying down the law, never commanding, persuading and reasoning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. We've been looking at examples, but here's a clear statement of Paul that that was exactly intentionally what he was doing. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 11, he says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. The, the effort of persuasion. When you're in charge, you don't persuade. Uh, Jack, when you are uh, the teacher in your classroom, and you're running your classroom, do you try to convince your students that it's going to be your way? Just tell them it's going to be my way, <laughs> right? Because you're in charge. You're the leader. The art of persuasion is an art that belongs to the one that's on the lower side of the scale. He's the one that's got to convince the one with more influence and more power uh, to come along to his point of view. And that's the attitude that the apostles took as they go into the world preaching. They recognize they were strangers in the world. So cockers expect the world to conform to them. They want everyone to think like them and act like them and believe like them. And you see that, don't you, in our culture? That as new laws are being passed and as new traditions are being created and as new things are becoming fashionable and, and, uh, and popular in our society, some things that we recognize as sin, although a year ago the majority of people thought, no, that's not right. Now if you say it's not right, you're hateful and you're maybe even deserving of being criminalized for what you do. Why? Because the conquerors in a culture expect everybody to conform. And when they win, everybody's going to go along with their point of view. Christians recognize, Philippians 2.15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I don't expect the world to be like me. I don't expect the world to conform to what's important to me. Not if I understand what God is saying through Paul here. I'm trying to be blameless and innocent without blemish. And I'm trying to do it in the middle of a world that is crooked and twisted and dishonest. I don't expect the world to be like me. I shouldn't expect the world to be like me. Because I'm not from here. And that's consistently, I think, what God is showing us in the Scriptures. We're children of God. And this world lies under the sway of the one. Wanderers know that they are different from the world around them. So Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's the mindset then that, that we need to have. Conquerors. People who expect to dominate. If someone opposes them or disagrees with them, they react with violence and anger. In Acts chapter 7. We read about Stephen's preaching. And as he talks about Jesus and he talks about the Jews' historical rebellion against God, finally 
brought to a head in their rejection and destruction of the Son of God. Verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's how, that's how the world reacts to opposition. How are you reacting? How are you feeling as the world is changing beneath your feet? And as we feel less and less comfortable in it, are you frustrated? Are you angry? Are you upset? Do you want to strike out at someone? Do you want to treat them the same way that you feel like you are being treated as a Christian? That's what someone who sees himself as a conqueror does. However, when you look at Colossians chapter 3, and we've been studying this in Sunday class, so you should be familiar. Verse 8. Paul says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with this practice. We don't have a right to react with anger or with malice or with wrath. We're told that we must put those things all away. Instead, how do we react as we look at the direction that the world is going? Look at Matthew chapter 23. I'm not going to say that Jesus never got angry and never got frustrated with his people. But even looking at the chosen nation of Israel, really at the end, the main reaction of the Lord is not anger, it's sorrow at their hard-heartedness and their wickedness. So that as Jesus stands over Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, right after he's gotten done rebuking them for their hypocrisy and hard-heartedness, in verse 37, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is he calling down the thunder on him and just glad to be done with him? He's crying. As he says these things, he's weeping over Jerusalem. How often I would have just gathered it together. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to save you, he says. And you wouldn't have it. That's not just the attitude of the Lord. In the book of Romans, I believe it's in Romans chapter 9. When the Apostle Paul talks about his attitude towards his hard-hearted countrymen, the Jews... He says in verse 1, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, Romans 9, verse 1. I'm speaking the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. How, how does Paul feel about those Jews that are rejecting the gospel? He says, if I could, I'd be lost for them. 
If I could be cut off from Christ and they could be saved, I would do that. I have sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Now, some of us maybe as Christians are beginning to feel a little put upon. We're beginning to feel a little bit oppressed and a little rejected in our society. When Paul is writing this in Romans saying, I have sorrow over them and anguish of heart towards them. And I wish I could be accursed and cut off from Christ so that they could be saved. These are the guys who've been trying to kill him since the day he became a Christian. And he's still weeping over them and sorrowful at their hard-heartedness and wishing that somehow he could do something to save them. That's the way an outsider looking in looks at things. When I was going to Russia in the early 90s, there was another man uh, from Greencastle, Indiana that came. And it was, I don't think it was my first trip there, so maybe I was a little bit used to it. But one thing that is really shocking there is the living conditions. Uh, just horrible living conditions that some people live in. And, and more so when you go to South America in some places. But anyway, this fellow came and it was his first time seeing it. And he just almost couldn't function in that. As he looked at how people were living, he was just so sad to see that people were living like this. And so torn up that there wasn't really anything that he could do about that particular thing as he was there with it. But it was an outsider looking in. You know, If you actually lived in that culture and you were frustrated by what was going on there, you might begin to stir yourself to do something about it. He was only there temporarily. It's not, it's not his world. He was just visiting. That's so all he was was sad. And as hard-hearted as that sounds, that's really the attitude we have. As this world burns itself up in its foolishness and its ignorance and its rejection of God, at the end of the day, that costs me nothing. Because this is not my world. And this is not where my hope lies. And this is not where I'm going home to. When this world finally is completely destroyed, all of my treasures will be elsewhere. And so it's just sad to look at. But it's not really any skin off of me as the world goes the way God said it was going to go. And so Paul is just filled with sorrow. He doesn't want to fix Israel. He wants to save Israel and bring it into the kingdom of God. How do we react to the sin of the world? Conquerors have proud expectations. In Mark chapter... 13, verse 13. We might as well get rid of any kind of expectation as Christians. In Mark 13, verse 13, Jesus says, You will be hated by all for my name's sake. What's my expectation of the world? Do I expect to be respected? Because I'm a preacher of the gospel? Jesus says you're going to be hated. Why should I expect anything differently from that? Instead of having proud expectations of being wined and dined and treated well, Peter says, look at yourself as a servant in this world. First Peter chapter 2. We already read verses 11 and 12. If we begin in verse 13, he says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his, in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. I, I think or I hope that you can see the contrast in mindsets and between one who sees himself as a wanderer or traveler in this world and one who sees himself as a conqueror conqueror of the world. And so Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, keeping your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so what are some ways that affects our behavior? In Colossians chapter 3, when we're told to put away wrath and malice and anger, in verse 12 of Colossians 3, he says, Put on compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And if those are the things that we put on as Christians, is there a realm of activity where God wants to take those characteristics off again and put our anger and wrath and malice back on? Those become our permanent characteristics. It should be our character in all circumstances, humble as strangers in a foreign land. We find Paul setting that example, serving God with all humility and with tears and with trials as we read about his activities in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 20 in Ephesus, we see him saying, I covered no one's silver and gold. He says, I wasn't here for any kind of earthly gain. In verse 34 of Acts 20, he says, we work with our own hands, giving you an example that is better to give than to receive. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he talks about being gentle among you, working not night and day, being blameless in his conduct, acting as a sojourner, not demanding anything. It should affect our tone as we try to influence others. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says, Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your, your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Always give a defense. Always have a reason. Always be ready to preach the gospel. But he also says do it with gentleness and with respect. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, it says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So both, both times, right? Peter and Paul both. Say, when you're preaching, when you're teaching, when you're persuading, do it with gentleness. Do it with respect in the hope that they may be saved. And you find that being exemplified for us in the first gospel sermon in Acts chapter 2. When Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost. 
in no uncertain terms, he lets them know that they took the Son of God, come in the flesh, and they killed him. That's why they're cut to the heart. And they ask men and brethren, what shall we do? And yet as he's preaching them, it doesn't sound at all as if he is berating them or calling down the thunder on them. Instead, he's pleading with them to be saved. With many other words, he persuaded them, save themselves, save yourselves from this wicked and perverse generation. You remember from Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, he's talking to a very similar crowd of people. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 17, In verse 15, he says, You killed the author of life, who God raised from the dead. To this we are all witnesses. In verse 17, he says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God has foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he would thus fulfill. Repent, therefore, and turn again, and that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. When he says that in verse 17, Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You need to understand that Peter is giving them every benefit of the doubt. And when you study the Gospels, there's pretty strong evidence that they knew who he was and killed him anyway. And yet Peter doesn't address that at all. He gives them the benefit of the doubt and says, I know you did it in ignorance. Repent, turn, and just be converted. He's gentle in the way that he approaches them. And again, if we see ourselves as the as the outsiders, that's going to be our attitude too. We don't have a right to be condescending. We don't have a right to be impatient with the world. Our job is to plead with the world and reason with the world and persuade with the world, persuade the world that they might be saved. Because as we live in this world as travelers and as sojourners and as strangers, what we also are in this world is ambassadors for Christ. One more time, 1 Peter chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In verse 15, he says, Be subject to the rulers for the Lord's sake. Everything we do, we do for the Lord's sake. And we want to represent the heavenly kingdom well. And I'm sure that there is a feeling on the part of Christians that we have been gentle, we have been kind, we have been patient, and we're just getting steamrolled by the culture that we live in. And the solution God gives us is keep being gentle, keep being patient, keep being kind, so that when they speak evil against you, as they are more and more, if you stand against homosexuality now, if you stand against homosexual marriage, the world is saying you are filled with hate, you are a bigot. Well, what's going to be the proof that you're not? If when you speak, <laughs> your speech is filled with anger and hate and frustration, and then they say you're a bigot. Well, you kind of look like you are. But if you're only ever gentle, if you're only ever kind in what you say, if you're only ever humble in your reproach. As you stand for the truth, then when they speak against you as evildoers, everybody who knows you will have to say, well, I know that guy, and he's not, he's not hateful. He's not a bigot. He just believes some things that are different. The solution is not to forget all the principles God taught us and go to war in our society. 
But the solution is to continue to live according to the principles that God gave us. So we can be ambassadors for Christ in the world. So that some, as the world becomes more and more corrupt, more and more wicked, and in ways more and more insane, there will be some looking around thinking there's got to be something better than this. And ideally, when they look around, some of God's people are going to be standing there setting an example of what's better and what's more right. And that's our responsibility as strangers and sojourners and pilgrims on this earth. And by doing that, in the end, as we travel through this world, we will be more than conquerors.